Uh, today we will have our second meditation on Lent. And I'd like to turn with you to Luke chapter 22. Uh, last week we looked at the, the place of we call Gethsemane, the wine press. Uh, the, this is the incident soon after that, yeah, the inc- incident ensuing. Uh, Luke chapter 22, we'll read it from verse 47. Okay? While he was still speaking, we're reading from the NASB, a crowd came, and the one called Judas, one of the twelve, was preceding them, and he approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Sometimes it's the hardest when uh, those who are close to you uh, harm you. Yeah. Verse 49, when those who were around him saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And it's very interesting to me in this, in this account. So the disciples around Jesus, they actually anticipated what was going to happen. They kind of knew what was going to ha- happen. They saw, it hap- they saw it coming. And what they said is this, okay, we can have a bit of a jump on them, right? Because we can see what's going on. Shall we arm ourselves and really get, it, get to him? Get to them. They saw what was going to happen. And they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? Shall we? You just say the word. And it doesn't seem like the Lord said yes. In fact, it seems like the Lord said no because what, what happened ensued, that ensued showed it. And one of them struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his right ear. And you know who that was, right? The jumpy one. But Jesus answered and said, Stop, no more of this. That's why I think that Jesus had actually said no. Because those guys were just getting agitated. They wanted to make their move. And Jesus probably was saying, No, no, no. And they were saying, Yes, yes, yes. Right? Stop, no more of this. And he touched his ear. And healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come against him, Have you come with swords and clubs as you would against a robber? While I was with you daily in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this hour and the power of darkness are yours. There are times in our lives in which darkness is given for some reason to our enemies and those who betray us. And I'm sure you've all experienced this, when there is a time that happens in which someone that you really trusted betrays you. And the betrayal that comes from someone who you have trusted has greater consequences than if it's somebody who you did not trust in the first place. In fact, people who you don't trust, which you can see from afar, I don't hurt you that much. A lot of times they galvanize you. But when it's someone who you trust and somebody who's close to you, and the psalmist says, my close friend, who we ate bread together, that's probably, a, among other things, a messianic prophecy for what would happen because Jesus shared bread with, uh, with uh, Judas. That's where the pain is great. And when that pain ha- happens, we actually often don't know what to do with it. And there seems sometimes when the hour of is given to the enemy to betray us, betrayal will come. The Jesus even says that, you know, betrayal will come. But woe to the one from, from whom this, this betrayal comes. And the thing about it is that when we experience such betrayal, the betrayal of a friend, What's important here as we look at uh, Gethsemane and all this that has taken place is that Jesus bore your betrayal and my betrayal upon himself. It is not so much about how we should behave when betrayal happens, but that God took upon himself the betrayal of centuries, not just of Judas, 
all the betrayal that you and I have had from people who are close to you. The consequences of that betrayal that make us become more suspicious than we should be. Or that make us more hardened than we should be. Or that make us more injured than we should be. It is not that we don't experience pain from betrayal. There are times in which darkness will be given over for some reason, maybe by the devil, to an enemy, to such an extent that for somehow, for some reason we are not spared that. But what happens is that Peter, when he sees that, he refuses to take the betrayal to Jesus, to God. And we can sometimes, when that happens, refuse to take that to God. But what Jesus was saying is this, I'm going to bear this for you, so much so that because of this betrayal, none of you are going to actually experience the suffering of that. I will take on all the suffering. Peter was afraid that through cause of this betrayal, he was going to get imprisoned. That's why he panicked and he took his sword out and he, and he started swinging, right? The whole, dis- the whole discipleship band was ready to start fighting, make their last stand or whatever it is to protect themselves. And Jesus says, you'll not need to do that because I'm going to bear the betrayal for you. And so I want to just put it to you that actually as we just meditate on this, are there places in our lives when betrayal has taken place in you, for you, against you? Let's pray. whether it was because Judas wanted to be on the good side of the common crowd or because he wanted money. Betrayal is a spirit in some ways. It is a spirit. It has to do with darkness and demonic powers taking hold of our tendency to betrayal and using it like a a short knife into our side. And I believe that sometimes we experience this. Jesus earlier on said, let this cup pass from me. If it, if, it, if it were possible, I would rather not go through this. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Lord, we come before you and we would rather not experience this this particular kind of darkness that gets at our soul when it's least expected. And there's a part in us that wants to take the sword in anticipation and cut cut it. But we now give you the sword right now. We thank you that you carried upon yourself all the consequences of our betrayal so that if there's any of us to have experienced that the loss would be borne by you. We thank you, Lord. We receive your sacrifice, your death on our behalf. I want to invite you to just go ahead and just talk to God and just receive comfort. Place that betrayal upon Him. Him says, the love's bitter cup, He drank it up. And now I am free. We welcome you, Lord. Bless your name. Amen. Amen. Today I'd like to remind you that we are in the middle of Lent. And uh, as we think about Lent, we think of Easter and Lent together. The East, Easter is a, is a sort of a culmination of the preparation that we have had in Lent. I believe that God has great things in store for us. And I'm sure 
that what God wants to do is to bring people to himself through you and I. Maybe not by Easter, but somewhere around this, this year, I'm believing that God can cause us to experience the joy of carrying someone in our hearts, praying for them, praying for him or her, and seeing God actually do a work. And if you dare to pray with me for that, we will believe that God will do that. Amen? Don't allow the fear of disappointment or, or to, to stop you from actually asking anyway. Amen? I believe that God can do that. God, God desires that none would perish and that all should come into the knowledge of God. And so as we do that, we've been thinking in terms of Lent as a period in which God can prepare us, clear the ground, empower us, change us, make a difference in our lives so that the ground is, the, the way is cleared for God doing mighty things through us as a congregation and through us as individuals. So we're, we're, we're doing that. And so please do track with us. The, the Lent period is just as important as the Easter. You know, Lent prepares for it. And we are, in our, in our sermon series, been talking about this. Begin to start praying for people. Yeah? And ask God, what does it take? What will it take for my part? What must you do in me so that a place is made for this other person to come to you? Yeah? Ah, thank you, Daniel. We can be like those guys at Dunkirk to rescue one person, perhaps, into the kingdom of God. Amen? So last week we spoke about one of the things that actually can be a hindrance that God wants to deal with. And we spoke about idolatry. We looked at Psalm 135 and we saw that the, the gods of the nations, they have eyes they do not see. They have mouths that do not speak. They have ears that do not hear. They have no breath in their mouth, right? And all those who trust in them become like them. And so we saw how idolatry is not a passive thing. It's, just, it's not just earth, uh, wood, and, 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 and metal. It is something that is active because behind the idols, although the idols are themselves physically nothing behind them, they are like a virus. They are like a spirit. It causes you and I to become dumb. It causes us to speak things that have no consequence, that have no power, not anointed. It causes us to see things, lots of things, intelligent things, perceptive things, but not from God's eyes. It causes us to hear things, all kinds of things but not hear the voice of God. Because it's to speak things that have all kinds of knowledge and all kinds of wit and all that, but they are empty of power. That's the way in which viruses work, and that's the way in which spirits and idols work. Yeah, we've been talking about that. And sometimes what happens is that when we give ourselves to these things, they do not, do not just, just become kind of passive objects in our lives, but they become viruses in us. We've been talking about that. I'd like to talk a little bit further about how idols can cause us to be shaken, cause us to be full of shame. And sh being shaken and, and shame can actually be two things that can cause us not to be used by God. They will limit us, they will hinder us, and they will entrap us and, uh, and imprison us. And now let's talk about this as, as we look at Isaiah chapter 30, okay? Isaiah chapter 30, we'll look at this as uh, we look at um, uh, a page in the history of Judah. Isaiah is prophesying to Hezekiah, who was by and large a very good king, yeah, a very good king, a very smart and intelligent king, a very strategically uh, well-known king. He was living at a time and leading the nation at a time when the threat of the Assyrians was very strong and, uh, and um, a pre clear and pleasant, present danger. And what he had done is that he had gone to Egypt to, to form an alliance with Egypt because Egypt was the other superpower in the region that was on the east, in the east Assyria ascending, and then the, in, in further to the west and south, Egypt. Egypt was the power. Egypt was the cultural um, center of all the lesser nations in the Levant, like, uh, like, like Judah and Israel. And so Judah and Israel looked a lot to Egypt 
as their cultural, social, military strength. Everybody wanted to be like Egypt. Egypt's a big brother. And uh, they wanted that help against Assyria, this threat of Assyria. Because Assyria was coming. The, the northern kingdom, Israel, had already been taken by Assyria. Uh, 722 BC, um, the 10 tribes of uh, Israel were completely scattered. They're not, no, they're not, they couldn't be found anymore since then. So let's go into it. Verse 1, Isaiah speaks to Hezekiah and to the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom. Woe to the rebellious children, declares the Lord, who execute a plan but not mine, and make an alliance but not of my spirit, in order to add sin to sin, who proceed down to Egypt without consulting me, to take refuge in the safety of Pharaoh. And this is something that I want to um, just underline a little bit today. The issue of our, our craving for safety, yeah? our craving for safety. We want to be safe. There's, there's that, you know, um, one of the poets uh, talks about this being an age of anxiety. Yeah? W.H. Auden tells us an age of anxiety. We want to be safe. We proceed that down to Egypt without consulting me to take refuge in the safety of Pharaoh and seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore, the safety of Pharaoh will be your shame. And there's the shame part. And the shelter in the shadow of Egypt, your humiliation. For their princes are at Zon and their ambassadors arrive at Hanes. Therefore, will be, everyone will be ashamed because of people who cannot profit them. Who are, not for, who are not for help or profit, but for shame and also for reproach. The oracle concerning the beasts of Negev through a land of distress and anguish from where comes the lioness and lion, viper and flying serpent, they carry their riches on the backs of young donkeys and their treasures on camel's humps to a people who cannot profit them, even Egypt whose help is vain and empty. Therefore I have called her Rahab who has been exterminated, or in another translation, Rahab who can do nothing but sit still. Now go, write it on a tablet before them, and inscribe it on a scroll that it may serve in the time to come as a witness forever. For this is a rebellious people, false sons, sons who refuse to listen to the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, you must not see visions, and to the prophets, you must not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us pleasant words. Prophesy illusions. Get out of the way. Turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel, because it's inconvenient, right? Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, since you have rejected this word and put your trust in oppression and guile and have relied on them, therefore this inquiry will be to you like a breach about to fall, a bulge in the high wall, whose collapse comes suddenly in an instant whose collapse is like the smashing of a potter's jar, so ruthlessly shattered that a shirt will not be found among its pieces to take fire from a heart or to scoop water from a cistern. Verse 15. <coughs> this is God's solution. For thus the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, has said, in repentance and rest, you will be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength, but you are not willing and you said, no, for we will flee on horses, therefore you shall flee. And you will ride on in swift horses. Therefore those who put, pursue you shall be swift. It's funny how when we trust in idols, we become like those idols, right? One thousand will flee at the threat of one man, and you will flee at the threat of five until you left as a flag on a mountaintop, as a signal on a hill. Just imagine how Idols can reverse a promise of God, yeah? One will put 10,000 to flight, two will put 10,000. And idol, what idols do is this, you will become such that one will chase a thousand of you away. Therefore, the Lord longs to be gracious to you, verse 18. And therefore, He waits on high to have compassion on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. How blessed are those who long for Him. O people in Zion, and this is the part of, of God's promise, and this is what God has for us this Lent, I believe. Inhabitants in Jerusalem, you will weep no longer. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. When he hears it, he will answer you. Although the Lord has given you the bread of privation and water of oppression, he, your teacher, will no longer hide himself, 
but your eyes will behold your teacher. Your eyes will, your ears will hear a word behind you. This is the way, walk ye in it. See, this is the reversal of idolatry, which actually makes you not able to hear or not able to see. Whenever you turn to the right or to the left, and you will defile your graven images overlaid with silver and your molten images plated with gold. You will scatter them as an impure thing and say to them, Be gone. Then he will give you rain for the seed which you will sow in the ground and bread from the yield of the ground and will be rich and plenteous on that day. Your livestock will graze in a roomy pasture. Also the oxen and the, and the donkeys which work the ground will eat salted fodder which has been winnowed with shovel and on fork. On every lofty mountain and every high hill, there will, be a, there will be streams. And remember the prophecy today. Streams running with water on the day of the great slaughter. Yeah. Stop here for a little bit. Let's pray. Lord, we ask you that you open up this word to us. We think you have something very important, life-changing, freeing for us. And so we ask you that even now, you cause your word to be safely received. Administer your own word, Lord, by the Spirit to each one of us, to the speaker as well as the hearer. In Jesus' name, amen. It's interesting that uh, the promise of God, the, what God offered to the people of, of Judah, is not exactly promised land stuff. It's not really the American dream. It has in it the bread of privation. It even has oppression in it. See, what had happened was that Hezekiah chaffed at the oppression of Assyria. Assyria was the dominant uh, empire and had demanded tribute to be given by all the other uh, nations to it. And Hezekiah could not accept that. Hezekiah was about freedom, about liberty, about not being oppressed. And what he did was that because of the fact that he saw that he should be free, he rebelled against Assyria. It just seemed wrong that is Israel, and I'm going to use Israel in the more general sense so that... So that we understand we mean the southern kingdom, that, that, that Israel should come under the yoke of Assyria. How can it be? They are evil people. We are righteous people. God, Yahweh is our God. Why are we going under them? Why do we have to have this kind of life? And what he did was that he made a, a, a pact with Egypt, and in doing so, let Egypt become the bigger brother, the elder brother from an alliance. You see, when, when Christians make an alliance with the world, you will always be the, the younger brother. You will always be the little one. Remember that. Every time you make an alliance with the world, you will always be the junior partner. You will not be the senior partner. Okay? And by doing that, what happened is that they came under the shade or the covering of Egypt. And as a result of that, Egypt's covering was their covering. Egypt's justice was their justice. Egypt's righteousness was their righteousness. Egypt's good and prosperity was theirs. Egypt's land of promise was their land of promise. It came under the shadow of that. And what God wanted to do is to cause us to come under His shadow. Yeah, even when there are dis destroying storms, you come under my shadow, what God was saying. But Egypt, what Israel did, uh, Judah, was to come under the big brother, Egypt. Right? And that's because the faith of Hezekiah and, that is, and, and Israel was not exactly in God, but in a certain kind of life that God is purported to give. Their, their faith was in holding on to the blessing that ordinarily they should expect from God. They chaffed because they were so rooted in the fact that there should be freedom for the Christian, so to speak, and I'm just going to be anachronistic here, that, that we should have no problems here. Yeah. 
that we should not come under the shame of being oppressed by the, the, the Assyrians. We should not have this kind of, 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 of oppressor coming upon us. And it's interesting that what Isaiah was saying basically to Hezekiah is this, I have blessing for you even under the yoke of bondage in Assyria. And you cannot make the blessing of God, the prosperity of God, your idol. Because if you make that thing your idol, what you are worshipping is a certain kind of well-being that God is supposed to give to you. And what you will long for is well-being, not God. You will never be close to God because of that, because your God is an idol. It's almost like a biblical idol. An idol that comports with Scripture, but which is actually something that you set your heart on that is not God. I've seen many people, especially from where I come from, men, men of God, people in my, who, are, who, are, who, are, who are ministers of that, who idolize power, spiritual power. You'll see them spending hours and hours and hours and hours praying because they want the power of God. And you actually do see some of that in their lives. But you can see there's pride, there's arrogance, there's materialism, there's, you know, I think partly that's where the prosperity kind of, kind of, kind of, I don't know about it. I believe in prosperity, but there's something off about this kind of thing because it's self at the center of it. Does that make sense? The longing is not for God, but it's longing for something else, a good life, a good, whatever it is, a good, good thing. And Hezekiah was offended by the fact that he would have to have this kind of life. And so Isaiah says, there is something about the way in which you are keyed to the good life that's hasty, that would throw God out that would put God as the lower priority because you want good more than God. Yeah? What you want is good, not, not, not God. But you have no idea how good God can make it for you. You have no idea how even under Assyria, you, God can make it so good for you that you can't even, you can't even consume it all. You can't even take it. And what we as Christians are preaching is not that we will have utopia or that there will be no oppression or there will be none, none of the bad things that happen to us, but that even in prison, we will be free. Even when things are taken away from us, when things are not fair, we will experience God's power because that is more important. Okay? So may I suggest to you that as we look at this passage, sometimes we can look at we can draw a parallel between our own kind of uh, desire to have God, but more in favor of God doing good things for us. And so because of that, what um, Isaiah says is that it will be your shame and you will be shaken. Two things. You'll be shaken and you'll have shame. Let's have a look at these idols, okay? Just for a short while. We don't want to look at them too much because they are not that edifying. But this is what, what um, Isaiah says. Verse 20. Okay, I'm going to go straight into it because I'm anticipating that the, the clock will run really fast when I'm not looking. So I'm going to trick the clock and I'm going straight into verse 20. 20. Okay. Although the Lord has given you... Sorry, let's go from verse 19. O people of Zion, inhabitants in Jerusalem, you will weep no longer. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. When he hears it, he will answer you. Although the Lord has given you the bread of privation, okay, deprived, yeah, and water of oppression, he, your teacher, will no longer hide himself, but your eyes will behold your teacher. Your ears will hear a word behind you. This is the way, walk in it. Whenever you turn to the right or to the left, and you will defile your graven images overlaid with silver and your molten images plated with gold. 
you will scatter them as an impure thing and say to them, be gone. Okay, these are the images, okay? The images, these idols, they are gold-plated. It's not that there's no gold. There is gold. It's just a thin layer, that's all. And they're silver-plated. Underneath is iron or wood. Here, I think it's wood. Uh, it's iron. So what it's saying is this. There are idols. And these idols, remember, these are idols of uh, quite godly people. The only thing is this. These idols look like solid gold. They look like solid silver. But they are not solid. The gold is a veneer. It's real gold, but it's a veneer. The silver is real silver, but it's shallow. It's superficial. And may I suggest to you that these are the idols that make us superficial in God. There's a superficiality about the God stuff in us because of the fact that for some reason, and I'll give you a few, we don't go deep with God. We are, as, we, as Psalm 135 says, like them, like those idols. And that is the problem with much of Christianity today. It's not that there's no God there. It's not that there's no anointing. It's not that there's no gold, no silver. It's just that it's shallow. It's so shallow that the shame underneath it is not taken away. The fear is not taken away. That's why we get shaky. And we, we heard the song, we will not be shaken. What God is wanting is for us is not a shallow spirituality, but a sp- spirituality in which through and through, from top to bottom, from inside to out, it's gold. Not silver, not, not just play gold, gold-plated. We live in a society in which image is everything, isn't it? What we project to other, others is everything. We take worship and make it into a presentation. We take Bible wisdom and we turn it into an intellectual exercise. Or, uh, or, or a mystical kind of mishmash of nonsense based upon what we want. Or we turn it into predictions that are like fortune-telling. We can take hearing from God and we take hearing from God as a sort of a, 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 a sort of a, a, a what, what do you call this? It's fortune-telling. Predict- palm reading. Yeah? We can take it, we can take any spiritual thing and make it into something that is superficial and actually becomes something of a function of our own good that we project onto God or we, 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 we elicit God's help you know, for us. And what, what Isaiah was basically saying is this, you have to be careful about being gold-plated. They will make, the gold-plated idols will make you like that. And that's why my logic is this. The gold-plated idols actually make us superficial. Yeah? Superficial, the gold-plated, silver-plated idols. They make us superficial. There are things that make us superficial. Sometimes what happens is that I begin to see how superficiality can come easy to me too. Come easy to me. Safety. You know, one of the best experiences that I have often is when I'm really in trouble. I have to sit for a big exam and I'm not prepared for it. Or when I get sick. And when I get sick or when I'm in trouble or I'm very, very worried about things and I'm easily shaken, what God does is that He calls me to seek His face. And when I seek His face, I put my trust completely in Him because there is no sure thing about any, anything around me. Right? So when I got my cancer diagnosis in uh, June, July, I can tell you that it was one of the most powerful, blessed times that I lived in that reminded me of a lot of the rich times that I had with God because I would go deep with God. I would wake up in the morning completely 
um, oppressed by fears. The very, very thing that I prayed since a kid that I would not get cancer came upon me. That the very, very thing. I said, God can be anything, but just make sure I don't get cancer. And then I got cancer. And I would wake up in the middle of the morning uh, of, the, of the night think, oh, I'm that person who got cancer. The thing that happens that shouldn't happen to you, it happens to everybody else, happened to you. I was like, wow, I have cancer. And I would have to go up, get, get out of the room, go downstairs, pray. And I would pray and I would come to the Lord and I wait upon Him and He would come underneath me. Not just give me a word, but give me it's His presence to such an extent I'm surrounded by His presence so that even before a word comes, I am feeling the peace of God, the safety of God, the somehow the just inexplicable comfort of God, the, the joy of the Lord. That's why those of us who are in, in daily prayer, I always pray for people to have comfort. I don't mean consolation in the sense of like you get a consolation pride. I don't mean some emotional kind of thing. I mean comfort as the fullness, the full breath of the Holy Spirit. I experienced that. And as things moved, I would go through tests. And every time you have a test, the possibility of it being bad news is actually, from my point of view, 50-50. Is it worse or is it bad? Did the cancer spread or did it not spread? You know, it's all that. Right up to the moment of my biopsies, my MRIs and, and bone scans and all that kind of stuff, for several months, I was always faced with the possibility that absolute disaster could be happening. But the Lord would come. And see, for me, the proposition with God was always this. I am completely unsure whether I'm going to be okay or not. If you give me a word, it has to be very compelling. It's almost as if the word that I get has to be so real, it's so substantial, that it makes me feel more peace than fear or anxiety. Does that make sense? Every morning, the Lord would do that for me. Every morning, I would wait upon the Lord, and the comfort would come, and then a word would come. My whole devotion book is filled with passages of Scripture that the Lord impressed upon my mind. I would read, and it would be so accurate. Then, as things moved on, I had the surgery on, on the 22nd of September. And the good news was that it had gone very, very well. Exactly as God had spoken to Cindy and I. Exactly as He had spoken to our children. Exactly. And I was free. And one morning coming down, coming back from the hospital, I realized all those things that I have concerned about, they are not there. They are not there. I am, to all intents and purposes, free of cancer. I'm actually safe. I'm safe. I am free. I can think about many, many things without having to think about these things with cancer in the middle of it. When I had the cancer diagnosis, we, we went to Michigan to, to get Kaylin into school. And it should have been a very, very easy and wonderful time. And it was. But it was only wonderful because every day I would wake up with cancer and pray until God would ease me and comfort me and all that. Does that make sense? After that, I thought, let's go Michigan. Then we can really enjoy Michigan. You know, I got my cancer uh, uh, diagnosis just before my birthday. I can still remember on my birthday, um, Lisa and I had the same birthday. So we celebrated both of our birthdays. We went for hot pot. Hot pot is great. I tried my best to enjoy it as best as I could. After that, I thought, I want hot pot. Let's go for hot pot. 
I wanted to redo all those experiences that were in some ways burdened by my unsafety. Go for it, right? The feeling of being freed from prison is amazing. And I remember the day after that, everything seemed to be okay. Doing my devotion, thanking God and everything, and feeling free. Feeling free. And then the Lord spoke to me. He says, you feel free. Huh? You feel free. Why? Why do you feel free? Because there's an absence of cancer. Okay. No need for MRIs. Okay. No need for bone scans. Good. Is that how, why you feel free? Because there's no cancer? Immediately I knew what God was saying was, you are safe because of me. Not because you don't have that. And I tell you, I love God. I loved God in that moment. And I was determined that I will never accept freedom, prosperity, blessing, safety, and all that in and of itself. Because that's a lie. What I want is God. Does that make sense? The lack of longing for God, but the longing for safety makes us superficial. Does that make sense? It makes us shallow. It makes us goal on the top. But when people get to know you and they cut into your life and begin to cut into your space, they'll see it's plastic. It's fake. It's not that there's real there's not real goal out there. It's just that it doesn't go that deep. When we have God and we worship Him and we pray and we do all these things because we want the safety, what's going to be happening is this. When the safety is assured or the danger is taken away, we will relate to God differently. You may still pray, but you won't long for Him. You will long, not long for him. And we saw in Isaiah chapter 30, he says, the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Yeah? The Lord, he says, how blessed are all those who long for him. Not for safety, not for the presence of God as a, as a kind of a phenomenon or a feeling, but for God himself. Not good things only. Those things come from God. But for God, there is a point in our lives in which our perspective changes from wanting these things or being threatened for the loss of these things to longing for God Himself. Does that, does that make sense? Have you prayed with somebody who loves God? I don't mean loves spiritual things or loves Christian things or has great vision or loves you know, righteousness or justice or Bible or all this. I don't mean those things. I mean longs for God. You know? And I tell you something. God has delivered me of many, many things. But when I come into the presence of God, and sometimes I don't know it, it just happens so often. I'm singing and my family knows it. Suddenly, when it gets close, I, I just fall apart. It's my heart just melts and I cannot keep a straight face. Because somewhere along the line, this one who loves me and who I love touched me and I cannot, I cannot survive that. I can't keep a straight face. I cannot be normal. You know? I long for us as a church not to be just spiritually astute but to be longing for God. Not just longing for the safety, longing for God. Amen? So that's one thing. There's something about the issue of safety that God is calling us to. And so what happens is this. He wants us to actually have safety, not because of safe things or living safe lives, being safe in God. Now, 
Here's how it relates to shame. Okay? See, Israel, Israel or Judah wanted safety in Egypt. They, would, they, would, they wanted safety more than God, I think, even though they did want God, because God gives good things. But there's something about the shame that needed to be dealt with, not by being associated with famous people or celebrities, celebrity Egypt, or powerful people by association, but by being associated with God. Let's have a look at this. <clears throat> In verse 20, it says, Although the Lord has given you the bread of privation and the water of oppression, he, your teacher, will no longer hide himself, but your eyes will behold your teacher, and your ears will hear a word behind you. You see, what happens is this. What God is saying is, I'm going to bring you to a, a temporary time. It was limited. It was a defined time. It's a, it's a finite time because later on, um, God says, later in that chapter, we'll come to that, okay? You are going to defeat Assyria. Actually, you're going to defeat Assyria. What? You're going to defeat Assyria? Assyria can't be defeated. No, you're going to defeat Assyria. But before that happens, you have to go through this period in which I will deal with you. And the reason why I will give you privation and I will give you the waters of oppression is because I want you to see your teacher. I want you to see the teacher so deeply, so clearly, and so, 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 so vividly that your teacher, the Holy Spirit, will be more dominant and imprinted in your mind than all those other things that you're longing for and, and, and all the fears and all the, and the shame and all that that the shame, the fears, the anxieties, the distractions will not cover over your vision of the teacher. So he says, even though I give you the bread of privation and all that, I will cause this thing to actually cause you to have nothing in life except the teacher, the Holy Spirit. And that's what he does, right? That's what he does sometimes. He doesn't do it forever. That's not what he has for you. It doesn't have you for doesn't doesn't have, have for you prolonged suffering. But he says there is a time in which, because you need to be cured of your idolatry, I have to take away everything that causes you not to hear the Holy Spirit, to be able to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. Or else what will happen is that you only hear your own intellectual thoughts, your own emotions, your own desires, your own wanting of a, of a promised land, your own fears. Because anything that you want other than God will make you shaken. Isn't it? Anything that you use to cover over shame will shame you. And you'll be afraid because you are afraid of the shame that's impending. You see something happening and you, ra- you, and you anticipate, just like, uh, just like Peter and the and disciples anticipated Judas coming and, and a, a battle coming. Shall we move? Shall we move? Shall we move? They'll be jumpy, right? And we become like that. We become like Hezekiah. We just want to quickly, quickly move, move to avi- uh, 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 avert, avert shame. Right? So we avoid situations that will cause us to have shame. We avoid situations that will make us look bad. We avoid situations that make us the, the only one against the majority. We avoid situations that make everybody who thinks one way and us who think the other way clash. We avoid that. We avoid being in the minority. We just follow everybody else. We follow everybody else's opinions of everybody else's values and all that. And so because of that, we can't stand for God. It's just superficial. The idolatry causes us to be superficial because of that. Now, here's how we get superficial with respect to shame. Shame is not, it's not, a, not just a feeling. Okay? Shame is a wound. It's a spirit that not only wounds us, but lodges inside us. It's, it makes us feel unacceptable because we are made a certain way. We, our sexuality is a certain way, or our desires are certain way. Our history is a certain way. There are many of us who are here 
who I'm sure have things that are in our past that we don't want to talk about. Such is the shame. And perhaps that's actually appropriate. Because what Christ has done is just washed us all away, made us new. Amen? But there are certain things that are a wound. They're a wound. They happen, but they're a wound. And what they do is that, what, what happens is that that wound causes us to alter our behavior, our, our moves, not get close or, or avoid certain things that look anything like that. Okay? Now, what happens is this. Many Christians say, but just by quoting the scriptures or the quoting spiritual doctrines, we say there is no shame anymore. We say by virtue of Christian verses that we have no shame. You should not have shame because you have a certain kind of sexuality because the Bible says so. Correct? We should not have shame because of what happened in your past because the Bible says so. Is that correct? Correct. But shame, more than a principle, is a wound. It's a thing that's lodged inside us that causes us to never want to be embarrassed. And it's not enough just to quote Bible verses to say there's no shame because the Bible says there's no shame that Jesus, Jesus has taken away your shame. He does not see you that way. Or you are made in the image of God or because of the fact that you are, you are accepted by our church or because of that. That doesn't remove shame. That tells us that God has made provision for our shame. But it doesn't remove the shame. How do I know? Because you dare not act in a shameless way. You dare not put yourself into a situation where you will tend to look bad or you will be rejected. You dare not do that. So as far as that is concerned, you have not overcome that shame. I don't mean to put it that way. You have not been healed of that shame. Shame is not healed because the Bible says these things. And you can interpret the Bible any way you want so that the Bible will say you don't have to be shamed, shamed about that. That is not going to take away your shame. I wish it could, but it won't, it won't. Bible verses don't take away shame. The print on this paper will not take away shame. I can try to do it. I can just put it and rub my heart with this thing and say, the Bible says so, the Bible says so. And I can repeat this many, many times and repeat it. It won't work. Shame comes when the Lord meets me. Meets me my shame in the place of prayer. Come up for prayer if you need, if you need deep ministry. He comes when the Holy Spirit comes and He uncovers the shame, right? And He speaks a word into it. Not Bible bullets. Not just knowledge. But He speaks a word. He touches us with His own very presence and He takes it away. So much so, that there's no more need. When I was living in England, I was very ashamed of being a Chinese person. Very ashamed. Those days in the, in the late 60s, 69, 77, 72, 73, it was worse than being another race. Because as a Chinese, you're ridiculed. <laughs> you're ridiculed. It's not, you're, it's not that you're hated. At least if you're hated, you're taken seriously. But you're ridiculed. And that shame caused me to not want to admit to being with Chinese. So every time I was in England, I never liked to mix with Chinese. The Chinese were just like, I don't want to be associated with them. I always want to be with non-Chinese. Anything, doesn't matter what color you are, red, yellow, black, or white. Doesn't matter, but not Chinese. Because of the association with that. Then the, lead, the Lord came to me. And I know that I'm freed from shame because I love being Chinese. I love being Chinese. I don't think we're better than anybody is. I think, I think we are not. Let's just say not. I love being Chinese. Most of the time, it's funny being Chinese. I can laugh with those people who make fun of me. I'm not sure whether that's an appropriate response, but it does not. 
I love being Chinese. I make jokes about being Chinese without any sense of hurt and all that because I've been healed. Does that make sense? It's been healed. I've been in situations where I had to preach and just because of the fact that I'm Chinese, people look askance at me and it does not affect me. I, I'm not talking about whether shoulds or sh- there should be shoulds and, or there should be codes of conduct. I'm just talking about the, the, the wound of shame. I'm just talking about the wound of shame. Whether it's wrong or right for people to make fun of me for being Chinese, that's not the issue. The issue is that for me, I've been healed. But there's something else that's needed. I have to not get into my pattern of shame and idolatry that makes me avoid the issue. So what happened was that after the Lord began to deal with me, I was aware of the fact that there are many things that I avoid. Many things I avoid. And I really wanted to see the power of God manifest in the gifts of the Spirit, praying for the sick, moving in the word of knowledge, prophecy, seeing the accuracy of God's supernatural revelation. Don't you? We're talking about Ad 1. We're talking about what will cause us to experience the power of God released. Okay? And I realized the reason why I don't move out in these things I move out in things that are relatively safe was because I don't want to be shamed. Correct? I don't want to be shamed. What if I'm wrong? What if I'm wrong? And I have my reasons. You know, I have my all very um, responsible reasons. We have a responsibility not to have false prophecies. Yes, I agree. agree. agree with all that. But it comes to it, many of us don't step out into the power of God because we're afraid that we're wrong that we'll be embarrassed. And I met a man in Malaysia. And when you look at him, he's not highly educated. His English is terrible. He's very broken in his English. He can't can't speak one one correct grammatical sentence. But he moves so powerfully in 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 the word of knowledge. I asked him, Albert, How do you actually move like this? Is there one particular key? Because I'm always unwinding keys, right? To you moving the gifts of the word of knowledge. He said, brother, you take your face and you throw it to the ground. (laughs) You take your face, your pride, you throw it to the ground. Every time you move in the word of knowledge, you take it and throw it to the ground. Until you don't need to do that anymore, it's gone, it's on the ground. You left it far behind. What he was saying is this. At first, in order to overcome shame, you, not, you have to receive Jesus. You have to let the Holy Spirit open up the heart and speak into it and wait until the Holy Spirit touches you. Then you apply it. Then you will become desensitized to shame. Amen? And so that's what I did, see? Not perfectly, but I found that every time I, 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 I wanted to see God move, I'd be in a meeting sometimes, and I said, Lord, surely there's more that, that you're, you're wanting to do. And then the Lord would, would, would uh, give me something. And I wouldn't know whether it's God or it's my own overactive imagination. So who? God or me? So I'll try to find ways in which I can prove that it's God and it's not, and sort of so-called discern. And many people think discernment is a matter of thought, like thinking, weighing out, using all the wisdom that you have and all that. I don't think that, that is wisdom, the gift of wisdom, uh, of, sorry, I don't think that's the gift of discernment. The gift of discernment is something that is more intuitive. It just comes, comes to you. It's the revelation. No rhyme, no reason. And I realized that every time that happened, I have to take my face and I says, I'm going to step out for what it's worth. Amen? And there were times when I made mistakes, but I think nobody knew it. God covered it up. But the point is this, shamelessness is very powerful. Shamelessness means overcoming the idol of shame. 
That's why the woman who came to the judge and made the judge, the unjust judge, intimidated by her because of her and the Greek word anaidea is shameless. And I believe that if God can set us free because of what He has done on the cross, that little step between powerlessness and power of God being manifest just takes stepping through that paper wall. It's a very thin measure between that. Shame does not get overcome just by using Bible bullets and saying, well, the Bible, doctrinally, we believe that the, that the Bible says that this is allowed and this is allowed and this is allowed, and therefore we can do it. Now, no shame. No, shame is deeper than that, and it requires more. Amen? Let us pray. We welcome you, Holy Spirit, into this church. We thank you, Lord, that you have overcome sin, self, and the devil. We thank you, Lord, that you have dealt with shame on the cross. You have dealt with every reason why we should feel unacceptable by you. We believe that not only in our heads, but we open our hearts to you. And we wait upon you. We grasp hold of this fact that you have washed away our sin, our shame. You've washed away everything in us that has made us inferior. That gives reason for people to think we are less than. And so even now we put down our own self-protection and our own safety mechanisms that you do what you will with us. Bless your name. Go ahead, just lift up your hands before the Lord or just open your hands before the Lord and give him the shame, give him the anxiety and fear. Anticipation of the future. Give it to him. Keep rolling it back to him. When he comes back, you roll it back to him again. Keep rolling it back to him. Every day we do that. To receive, Lord God, um, you. We eat of you. Even now, we eat of you. We ate of you in the communion. We eat of you right now. And Lord, we forsake. We forsake eating of other things right now. Lord, clean out our esophagus, our spiritual esophagus, right now in Jesus' name. Clean it out right now. Those even yearning for other particles, even eating of other people. Eating of people, trying to be over another person right now. Lord, we forsake those things. Clean us out right now as we eat of you. There is no proper food for our spirit besides you. So, Lord, as a body right now, would you come and just deliver us from shame as we eat properly of the things that we were made for, that grow us, that deliver us. In Jesus' name. Amen. If there's any one of you who would like prayer, feel free to come forward. Come forward to receive prayer. Or you may want to remain in your seats, just waiting upon the Lord. The times that shame is so painful, you may not be able, feel free to share with anybody. And yet at the same time, God is here. And he knows you through and through. He knows about that shame. He knows about that thing that happened. And he says, you're not tainted by that. You are not. You're made new. 
you can have the audacity to say, it is as if it never happened. And there are some of us who feel shame just because of the fact that just being human and broken, shame is there. It's a vague feeling. You can't pinpoint anything, but you just feel always not good enough. And you're sensitive to the possibility of criticism, of correction. When actually, you don't need to be. You're accepted in the beloved. But because of shame, it's a wound that makes a touch feel worse than it needs to. I want to invite you to give it to the Lord and wait on Him until He lifts it up. Lifts it from you. Bless the name.